This morning, we kind of make a shift in our study of the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 9 this morning, looking at the relationship between basically Gideon and his son Abimelech. And just in case you don't think that the relationship between fathers and sons matter, you will see by the end of our story today from Judges 9 just how important it is, the relationships that fathers have with their sons. But let me give you some examples of this throughout history. On the morning of January 3rd, 1903, a man woke up, he drank his morning glass of wine, and shortly after, he collapsed. He was taken to the hospital and died from what doctors called a plural hemorrhage. The man's name was Alois Hitler, the father of Adolf Hitler. In 1813, a man was born who later ended up becoming a German Lutheran pastor. And he took his first church at the age of 29, but at the age of 35, he became ill and passed away from what many think was a brain tumor. His name was Karl Ludwig Nietzsche, the father of Frederick Nietzsche, who is the one basically responsible for our current cultural climate of there is no objective moral truth, and that religion ultimately is evil. And then we have another man. He was born in 1815 in what is now known as Ukraine, Jewish descent. He grew up and he earned his living as a wool merchant. He was married three times. He had two children from his first marriage, and then he had eight children from his third marriage. It's a lot of kids. His oldest son from his first marriage was a father before the first son from his third marriage was even born. And that first son from his third marriage was Sigmund Freud, who ends up becoming another key figure in our world today, the one that gives us this idea that our sexual identity is at the core who we truly are, and that any attempt to squanch or to get rid of any desire or sexual fulfillment would be to say that we are not human. So fathers, for good or for bad, clearly make a difference in the lives of our children. While I might have mentioned some men today who are generally viewed, at least within evangelical circles, as rather negative influences on society, there is no magical formula that any of us as fathers or grandfathers in this room today can use to ensure that our children will turn out the way that we want them to. But we're going to see today from Judges 9 that even though Gideon and the mini-series that we just completed on him last week, even though Gideon is now gone from the book of Judges, his shadow is cast over our story today from Judges chapter 9. And the story of his son, Abimelech, is one full of pride and power much like the way his father ended last week when we studied Genesis 8. So in the story of Abimelech, what do we have? We have unhealthy family dynamics. We have jealousy. We have greed. We have lust for power. We have murder or just another episode of the days of our lives. This is what we have in the story of Abimelech. So as we work our way through Judges 9 today, we're going to identify four key truths Number one, we see the thirst for power. Number two, we see the courage of an outsider. 
Number three, we see the travesty of division. And then number four, we see the death of a son. So, the thirst for power, the courage of an outsider, the travesty of division, and the death of a son. As we work our way through Judges 9, you're going to actually jump back for a moment into Judges 8 because I want to show you the context of how we got here. Judges 8, verse 35. This helps us identify why, ultimately, Abimelech does what he does. And chapter 8, verse 35 tells us, And they, talking about the nation of Israel, did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So Abimelech in Judges 9 is going to make his campaign for power. He's going to be the one who replaces Gideon. He wants the power. He's hungry to get it. But he can't go to his father's side of the family because of what we just read in verse 35. Israel had moved on. They had forgotten about Gideon. So how does he go about trying to gain power well he goes to his mother's side of the family remember last week we learned that Gideon had a concubine from Shechem and Abimelech is the product of that relationship so Abimelech goes back to his mother's family and here's what we're told in verse 2 of chapter 9 say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So Abimelech convinces the leadership within Shechem that they actually want him to lead over them rather than all 70 of Gideon's sons. And they show their support by giving him 70 pieces of silver, and he goes and he hires, the text tells us, worthless and reckless fellows to help him go back to his father's homeland, Afra, and kill the 70 sons of Gideon. Now we're told that he killed all the brothers except one. And this is going to become important later on in the message. So the people of Shechem are impressed with Abimelech. He's a guy who takes the bulls by the horn. He is powerful. He is authoritative. And then we're told in verse 6 that they make him king. Now this is really important. In the book of Judges, we're not dealing with kings. We're dealing with judges. And that actually matters a lot. And we're going to see as we keep moving on. Abimelech is not a judge. Judges were divinely appointed by God himself to bring stability, peace, and unity to the nation of Israel. What Abimelech is doing here by becoming king is usurping the proper form of authority that God was supposed to give to people at this point in the nation of Israel. Abimelech is stepping up on his own to take power and authority. In other words, he's operating outside of God's will for the nation of Israel at this point. So Abimelech is a sinner. He's disobeying the clear command that God has given his people. He's acting the way that all sinners behave. 
So Abimelech's behavior as stepping up and becoming king is not God's fault in this message. In the same way that our sin is not God's fault. We are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. Our hearts are evil. They're full of wickedness. I could read scripture after scripture to prove this point. But you know, just because you're in Christ and you're saved from sin does not mean that immediately sin never appears again in your life. We've talked a lot about the three tenses of salvation. And we know that it's only when Christ returns that we will be saved from the presence of sin. So even if you're in Christ today, you will battle the flesh daily. So our pursuit of holiness and righteousness is not something we can just put to the side and hope that it just happens magically. We have to pursue it. We have to pursue Christ with all that we are. Be in his word. Pray to him. Confess sin. Gather with the saints. This is the formula that God has given us to help us overcome sin in our life. But what's so interesting about Abimelech's thirst for power is that it's already been modeled for him by someone else, by his father. We just talked about this last week in chapter 8. Do you remember? The men of Israel cried out to Gideon and his sons, and they said, rule over us. Come, give us leadership. And we said that even though Gideon verbally rejects this, the way that he acted actually proved that he wanted it. And we went over all of those ways last week. He greatly desired to be in leadership, even though he explicitly said he wanted nothing to do with it. So in a sense, you could say that Abimelech, he takes over the family business from his father. He is interested in power and authority, all for the wrong reasons. Now, the question becomes, why After all that Israel has experienced, after all that Shechem knows about what has happened, why would the people of Shechem step up and say, yes, Abimelech, we want you to lead us? And the answer to that is deep down within every human heart is a desire for someone to lead us. Every human being has that within their soul. They want leadership. We crave leadership. This is why the President of the United States is the most powerful and oftentimes most respected person in the country. Why is that? Because we crave leadership. We want somebody who steps up and takes control. So for Shechem, Abimelech is that person. He's going to lead them to the promised land or so they think. We're all created to want leadership, but the problem for any of those that are not in Christ and because of sin is we're guilty of looking for it in all of the wrong places. So Abimelech has this thirst for power. But number two, we see in this story the courage of an outsider. We learn in verse five that one of Gideon's 70 sons escapes the wrath of Abimelech. His name is Jotham. And he steps up and he gives a courageous speech to the people of Shechem. I'm going to read it for you beginning in verse 7. 
Here's what it says. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech, and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Malo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Malo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So you probably don't have any idea what he just said there. This is a fable. So take all of the characters that were just discussed. We have the trees, the olive tree, the fig tree, the grapevine, and then we have the bramble. Now this is a fable. It's not supposed to be interpreted literally. Obviously you're smart enough to figure that out. But each one of these crops that is used, the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine, are three of the most important crops, three of the most important plants in all of ancient Palestine. Without question, olive oil is the most valuable item in all of Israel. It was used to provide fuel for lamps. It was used for cooking. It was used in perfumes. It was used to heal people. And it was used... To make sacrifices. So the trees, which represent the people of Shechem, approach this olive tree and say, Come and rule over us. And the olive tree says, No, I have all of these good things that I do for society. I do not want to rule over you. So they go on to the fig tree. The fig tree says, No, I provide sweetness to the people. I do not want to rule over you. 
He goes to the grapevine. The grapevine says, no, I provide wine to the people and to the gods. I do not want to rule over you. So the trees finally approach the bramble, the most useless character in the entire story. The one that contributes no positive impact to society whatsoever. And the bramble says, oh yeah, yeah, I'll rule over you. I'll be your king. And the bramble says, come and rest under my shade. But there's irony here. Bramble does not provide shade. In addition, there was nothing positive that the people would benefit from having the bramble rule over them. So all of the characters in this story would have been better rulers than the ones that the trees ultimately select. And this is what the people did when they chose Abimelech. Instead of patiently waiting on God to deliver the people with their next judge, they take matters into their own hands and they go and follow one who was not chosen by God to be their leader. Now, maybe you're asking the question, why would the people of Shechem, after hearing this story, still choose to follow after Abimelech? And it's really not that surprising because since the dawn of civilization, we as human beings oftentimes champion competency over character. We do this all the time. It's not about being a good person or about being a holy person or a righteous person. Sometimes we follow people that just find a way to get things done. People that are authoritative, that step up and they're not afraid to back down. They fight. They say things they're not supposed to say. But who cares? They're getting stuff done. We do this all the time. This is not that surprising. But brothers and sisters, in case you didn't know, character should always trump competency. Always. No matter what position, no matter what office, what is within a person's heart is always more important than whatever skills they might possess. Listen to a man who sat under Hitler during his reign in Germany. He says this, The words he uttered, the thoughts he expressed, often seemed to me ridiculous. But that week in Nuremberg, I began to comprehend that it did not matter so much what he said, but how he said it. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a rapport almost immediately and deepened and intensified it as he went on speaking, holding them completely in his spell. In such a state, it seemed to me, they easily believed anything he said, even the most foolish nonsense. Over the years, as I listened to scores of Hitler's major speeches, I would pause in my own mind to exclaim, what utter rubbish, what brazen lies. Then I would look around at the audience. His German listeners were lapping up every word as the utter truth. People were drawn to Hitler because he had charisma. Because he had the ability to produce within people excitement and energy. But if the German people would have looked at his character, maybe things would have been different. I know what you're thinking. Well, we're Americans. We, we don't do that. Yes, we do. We do it all the time. We prioritize competency over character all of the time. 
Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that might happen as Americans, but surely that doesn't happen within churches. Yes, it does. We prioritize competency over character in churches, in preachers. Go turn on the television and see which preachers come on TV. And see which ones sprinkle in a Bible verse here or there as they're creating a moral lesson for their audiences rather than faithfully teaching through the whole counsel of God. We do this stuff all the time. Now, you might be thinking, well, we're on TV. You're right, we are. And if we ever get to the point where all I'm doing is spewing out some character qualities and using a Bible verse, you should call WDHN and say, take him off the air. Because it is not helping people's spiritual lives at all when they sit at home and they watch stuff that does not lead them into the truth of the whole counsel of God. So don't watch it. Don't spread it. Don't tell people to watch it. I know there's good stuff on TV as well. There's also a lot of bad stuff. Do not let competency ever be prioritized over character. That's what we see happening in this story. And thank God for Jotham's courage to stand up before the people of Shechem and say, you have turned your hearts to one who is ultimately not interested in your good. He's only interested in his own power. So he leaves the people of Shechem with two options, verses 19 and 20, which I read earlier, but I want to read again. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Malo, and let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Malo and devour Abimelech. Those two verses become really important as we continue to work our way through this text. But number three, we see the travesty of division. We're told in verse 22 that Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. Why does that matter? Because in every other passage in the book of Judges, when God is talking about a judge, he ends the reign of that judge by telling us how many years they reigned. This is the case in Judges 8, Judges 5, Judges 3. But in this passage, he tells us on the front end that Abimelech rules for three years. Why does that matter? He's trying to communicate to us, basically, by telling us Abimelech is not a judge. We're not going to treat him with the same type of formula that we use with all of the other judges because he's not one. And God finally, in verse 23, intervenes in this story. We're told that an evil spirit is sent between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and here is where division begins to run rampant. This evil spirit causes great division between Abimelech, between the people of Shechem. There's a couple of other characters that are going to be introduced here. Look quickly at verses 26 to 29. Here's what we're told. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from their vineyards and trod them and held a festival. And they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaul the son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech 
And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. This evil spirit drives a wedge between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Now, ultimately, Abimelech, in verses 42 to 45, which I'm not going to read, he defeats Gaul. So he has victory over the one that was sent to try to create division within the people. And then in verses 48 and 49, he finishes off all of the leaders of Shechem. So we have the first part of Jotham's declaration coming true. Because in verse 20, we're told if the people did not act in good faith and integrity, that Abimelech would defeat the people, which happens in verses 42 to 49. Now you might be asking, why does the author of Judges give us all of this detail? Why does Gaul matter? Because ultimately Abimelech defeats him. That could have easily been glossed over. But the reason it's in here is because the author of Judges wants us to see just how much division is now starting to happen within Israel because of their decisions and their choices. Abimelech betrays the 70 sons of Gideon. Jotham escapes. Jotham comes and speaks against Abimelech. Gaul comes and tries to overtake Abimelech. Abimelech overtakes Gaul. He destroys Gaul and the people of Shechem. Every story in this encounter is division and chaos and instability. And we know that true judges brought peace and stability and unity to the nation of Israel. This is where context in your Bible reading becomes so important. Because if you just open up your Bible to Judges 9, you'd have no idea that God actually ordained these judges to come in and provide peace and stability and unity to God's people. That's why we didn't just start our study of Judges in Judges chapter 9. So what about us? We're not living in ancient Israel. Where does our unity reside? Our unity resides in the gospel. That is what unifies all believers across all of time, all over the world. Our belief in what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. That is where all Christians find unity. And when we take other things and try to make that where we find our unity, whether that be in politics, ethnicity, social issues, it will ultimately divide the church. Because our unity is only in Jesus Christ alone. So Abimelech, the Israelites, the people of Shechem, Gaul, the 70 sons of Gideon, Jotham, all began to have conflict Because their unity was no longer in Yahweh and his rule over their lives. So sadly, as this story comes to a conclusion, we see the death of a son. Look at verses 50 to 57. 
Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and he encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower, and he fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. In case you don't know, an upper millstone is a gargantuan, heavy stone that was used in the process of grinding grain. We're not talking about a pebble. We're talking a huge stone that was dropped from the top of this tower and crushed Abimelech's head. And because he's so prideful, because he's so arrogant, even in his death, he wants to ensure that there is no way that he could be defeated by the hands of a woman. The one stone that earlier in Judges 9 we're told that Abimelech used to slaughter the 70 sons of Gideon. Now it is one stone that kills the all-powerful Abimelech. Why in the middle of this story about Judges do we have this aside really about this man known as Abimelech? Because when human beings desire power, it almost always leads to disastrous consequences. But when we put our trust in the one with unlimited power and behave with humility, we can be used of God to accomplish his purposes in the world. How do I know this? Because there's somebody by the name of Jesus who models this for us. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Abimelech's head was crushed by a upper millstone, eliminating his ability to have power. And as we will celebrate in just a few moments, 
Jesus' hands and ankles were crushed for our iniquity and for our sin. And yet, in that act of ultimate humility, God reigns victorious. And he is all-powerful. If God has entrusted you in this room today with any sort of authority whatsoever, how are you using it? To empty yourself and serve others the way that Christ models for us or to make sure people know that you're the number one guy, that you're the most important person in the room. Heed the story of Abimelech and humble yourself before God. Let's pray. God, as we get ready to partake of this meal together as a family, we are reminded of what Jesus endured for us on our behalf, dying in our place for our sin. And he did it to serve us, and he did it because he loves us. So if there's anyone here today who does not know Christ, who has never repented of their sin and believed in the gospel, would you move in their hearts today? May they find me or someone close to them after the service so that we can share with them the ultimate good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.